Welcome to A Reason for Hope. I am your co-host, Adrian Van Vactor. It's a pleasure to be here in studio with Pastor Peter Martin and Pastor Sean Richards. Hope you're doing well today, and we're so glad you've joined us. This is a weekday Bible answer program from 5 to 6 p.m., and we are here to take your questions. We are live streaming right here from Tucson, Arizona, from Calvary Christian Fellowship. We are located in the I guess west side of town, or the west side of Tucson, Arizona, and uh, we've been doing this program for quite a long time, and <clears throat> up until recently it was all this uh, kind of a radio-type program, but uh, over the last several years it's become more and more of a live stream, so we're so glad you were able to join us. If you have a question about the Bible, the Christian worldview, the meaning of faith, or how it's relevant to the Christian life, uh, or to anyone's life, really, for that matter, <clears throat> uh, please... Uh, Follow, uh, follow along with the program and give us your questions, and we'd be delighted to attempt to give you a reasonable answer that brings hope to your life. So if you want to engage with us, you may do so on Facebook. We live stream to Facebook and YouTube. Our Facebook handle is CCF Tucson. So if you go to facebook.com forward slash at CCF Tucson, you can engage with us there. Just watch the live stream and leave your question in the comment section, and we will <clears throat> monitor that throughout the program. You can also follow along on YouTube. And if you happen to catch us on these social media platforms, please uh, do us a favor, hit that subscribe button and hit that notification bell. We live stream not just this program every weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, but we also live stream all of our services. So if you're interested in hearing uh, what our senior pastor is teaching currently, you, you can engage with us. Even if you're not a member of our church, we'd encourage you to go through the Bibles we do, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And our YouTube handle for our YouTube channel is a Reason for Hope 546. So we encourage you to go there. And uh, if you want to leave a question, do so right there on the YouTube channel, and we'll get to it during the program. We also upload our archives to Rumble. So if you're kind of a rebel and you want to uh, try a different platform. We're not live streaming there yet, but we do put our episodes there. So if you want to go to Rumble and watch yesterday's broadcast or the day before, uh, you can follow us there. We'd really appreciate that as we try to grow our audience on Rumble. And we get kind of some interesting statistics there. But uh, <clears throat> anyhow, we also, if you want to avoid social media platforms altogether, you can go to our website. That's calvarychristianfellowship.com. And you can go to the Watch Live tab. And you can watch this program live. Uh, you can <clears throat> even leave a question there. There's a little comment box. There's a little button you can hit for making a prayer request. And so we'd encourage you to go there. If any place, go there. And that way you can at least watch the program. If you don't have a Facebook account and you don't like go there or you don't want to go to YouTube, uh, you can watch it there as well. <clears throat> we also have an app that we'd encourage you to check out. If you are a member of our church and you haven't quite uh, had a chance to do so, uh, you can go to the iTunes or Google Play Store, and you can download our app. Just search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and you can download our app. You have a nifty digital Bible there where you can follow along on messages. You can change the translation that you want to use. You can leave notes, things like that. You can join chat groups. You can create chat groups. Follow along with our current events at our church. Watch our services live, and so much more. So we'd encourage you to download that if you haven't. And also, if you just want to watch our services live stream on your smart device, you can uh, add our channel to any of the Amazon Fire products and Roku. So we'd encourage you to do that. And finally, 
If you'd like to ask your question a little more discreetly, you can do so by just emailing us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you're listening on the radio, that's questionsforhope, <clears throat> all letters, no numbers, at gmail.com. Well, that just about covers everything, right? <laughs> and uh, um, before we take your questions, we typically on Mondays, especially Mondays and, and Tuesdays, we'll start off with a little interesting current event or a topic, and then we'll get to the questions. But before we do any of that, we, do, we really try to make a habit of doing the most important thing, and that is to, while we're on the live stream, take a moment and talk to God and ask Him to be here with us. And so if you wouldn't mind joining us doing that, we'd really appreciate it. Uh, Sean, would you care to pray for our time? I would care very much. And thank you that we have the chance to be here, anoint Peter and I, to be able to speak your word as well as your heart, to share your perspective, and to ultimately give that to your people in a way that they understand and can use in their own lives in a way that honors you. We ask that this would be what's done, that you would be honored and blessed by what we're doing here, and thank you for giving us the privilege of being a part of that process. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, <clears throat> there's an article that you wanted to discuss, and so I'll, Peter, I'll just hand it over to you and let you kind of introduce today's uh, sort of introductory thought. <laughs> well, I, you know, I figure we're halfway through Pride Month, which I'm sure you're all celebrating with a lot of gusto and excitement. Looking so, forward um, to uh, sowing discord among brethren month. <laughs> <laughs> uh, last week, a very famous actor, actress turned actor, named Ellen Page and then now Elliot Page wrote a memoir called Page Boy and uh, it's just kind of essentially like a coming of age story. That's essentially how it's written. It's written as a characterization of their life moving from what they perceive as a hidden self into their true self, namely that of their masculine persona. And I think it's, it's a really interesting thing to look at. Those of you guys who are really wondering about the growth in the transgender issue and what it's like and why it's happening. I think this person actually gives us a very interesting, several very interesting insights into this phenomenon and the possible social contagion aspect to what's going on. So after uh, she released this book, there was a number of articles written about this book and uh, interviews done over her and things like that. So. Me and Sean thought it would be an interesting idea to kind of take a little aspect of this interview to talk about some of the things that she discusses and to look at it in a broader context of how should we think about this as Christians and why is it, again, uh, affecting the culture that we live in in such rapid form. So this is from the very beginning of the article, and this is how Ellen Page claims that she came to the conclusion that she is uh, actually a man. So uh, if you read the entire article, she talks a lot about being abused. She was famous at a very, very young age and sexualized at a very, very young age. She was, uh, talks about many times of being molested before she was 18 by uh, different directors, stagehands, people who are working on set with her. I mean, this is an aside, but it just doesn't seem like child actors have a really good go of things. They're, they're definitely, they have a really, really rough uh, movement into adulthood that seems to be the the general takeaway that you get from all these child actor stories but at any rate she discusses a lot of that stuff and she's now in her 30s I believe she transitioned last year um, and this is kind of the moment that she realized that she was actually trans so this is how she figured it out she was in a cabin alone isolated and, and she says this one night he tried to knock himself out 
took his knuckles to his face and pounded over and over until bruises formed. For days after, he sat in a lawn chair over the porch, ashamed, his face sore, and then he heard a voice. You don't have to feel this way. It was a small voice, barely discernible, but kept echoing in his head, a way out. It was as if something in my brain turned around, recalls Page, now 36, the agonizing voice saying, no, you're not, no, you can't, just switching and becoming very gentle and loving. Oh, maybe I'm trans. Why don't I explore that? Within weeks, he scheduled a Zoom consultation with a doctor to discuss surgery. The procedure was scheduled for November. A month later, he announced to fans on Instagram who have known him since the release of Juna 13 years ago that his name was now Elliot. So you have a, a clearly very mentally disturbed individual who is uh, committing self-harm in a cabin by themselves. Then they come to the conclusion after hearing a voice in their head that they are the opposite gender. And within weeks, they have a Zoom consultation. So they don't even see a doctor in person. They get a Zoom consultation and get a surgery where their breasts are going to be cut off within a month. So you do the math, about a month and a half from this realization, that's when it happens. Uh, Sean, what, do you, what are your takeaways from that? Well, given personal struggles and everything else that this involves, obviously read, reading through the article and going through some of the more broader strokes of what this book is about, obviously you see that this is not the ideal situation for very long-term decisions to be made. And obviously one of the first arguments that are being made regarding this social movement isn't just the fact that kids are being targeted, but the fact that actors and actresses, people with a lot of influence, are showcasing this as, well, this is your ideal, someone who can just make this decision, have these procedures done on a whim, and that's ultimately what brings their life to stability and fruition. Also noting some similar, I guess, reports, I hesitate to give them validity because the individual is known to lie often for political and social expediency but all that being said i don't doubt all of her abuse stories just the more recent ones we have a mention of them hearing voices and that sort of influencing them to the sort of decisions that are being made now for those of you listening at home who don't struggle with schizophrenia what's basically happening there is dreams or rapid eye movement the sort of audible and visual hallucinations that happen when you're sleeping but when you're awake sometimes those manifest as nightmares and you find people that are very unstable very erratic other times you see people who like myself during the times of my formative years i just thought that's what imagination meant that when you're thinking out loud or you just have ideas that they would manifest that way and it wasn't until in my adolescent years when they got a bit more aggressive that i thought something might be wrong for voices influencing decisions to be mentioned that late in the program yeah. also makes me very suspicious about this but even if we're to grant everything we need to take a note that a skewed view of reality is dictating decisions and that in any context in any culture and in any format or even leading to good conclusions to take the side of those who are pro this sort of movement is not the way you want to go when making any decision good or bad now if you're influenced for example off of what are little little described more as dreams that your brain's just processing different forms of stress and anxiety uh, 
funneling through emotions, basically just clearing the negative proteins out from your spinal column. That's not exactly what you call a stable grounding for your direction in life. But even taking a step back, even granting the fact that this is just that person's lived experience to use their terms and so forth, you need to be very careful for this reason. Firstly, when it comes to a perspective of self-harm, a perspective of hearing voices, both of which that I share, I can say from experience, this is something that doesn't have to be succumbed to. Like any other human being, we have sources of stress. Some of us have them ingrained into our psyche because our brains happen to be a little bit narrower upon birth. Other people have difficult living situations, difficult financial situations, sources of constant stress. And in the case of this individual, they're making the point that I was able to alleviate the stress by making a decision regarding my body, that I would augment this surgery, I would go into uh, basically this sort of direction in life, all well and good as far as the social climate that we're living in, the zeitgeist, if you want to use the fancy term. But when I go through those sort of experiences, for whatever reason, I can feel them, they pass, and I go on with my life. Granted, there are times where, just like anyone else struggling with an area of sin, regardless of the direction it's coming from, inside your mind, outside your mind, uh, physiology, libido, addictions, whatever, making decisions based off of wanting to alleviate pressure is, for all intents and purposes, self-manipulation. Doing what you think feels good rather than what is right. And if you let popular vote, if you let the decisions or examples of celebrities, or you let just the fact that you don't want to be stressed anymore, regardless if it's coming from voices, hallucinations, or just the realities of life, it's no different for someone who's mentally ill or from someone who is just in a position in life where they're experiencing this stress. You don't make decisions to alleviate pressure. You recognize the pressure and ask, okay, why is this happening? What can I do to, in light of this, make sound decisions that affect not just me, but other people around me in positive ways? Because being a celebrity, we affect more people than we realize. You both being parents, Adrian and Peter, you uh, impact uh, three and two more lives than I do on a very regular basis. But even then, the student ministry that I teach, I'm aware of that. And even acknowledging the way that teaching Bible studies or being on this radio program, I need to be mindful of that and not just make decisions on, you know, it would be really interesting right now. I just feel this pressure, this desire to, and I won't share what the voices are saying right now, but just having the ability to cope, having the ability to say, yes, this is what I feel, but not what I ought to do. And that's a character trait, not a mental trait. I don't identify myself based on my schizophrenia or my struggles with self-harm. I acknowledge this is something wrong. This is something that impacts people other than me. And I, instead of giving in to, in any context, what I feel, I ask what I ought, which you see throughout the memoir is not the highest priority. Right. No, and I, I really like what you're saying because it, it's, it's a really nuanced view. So I, I think some of the mistakes that Christians or uh, people looking at this particular issue might make is to say that this is not real, right? Th these people are making it up. It's just kind of like a fashion accessory. It's just something going on that is uh, fashionable right now. It's a fad. It's going to go away. 
Uh, what you're saying is that it's actually it's real in one sense, right? So they are undergoing extreme distress. They're just manifesting that distress in a really unhealthy way, and then it's further being exacerbated by social pressure. So the easiest way to understand it is if I were to put large amounts of pressure, kind of like what you're saying, the stress, right? If I were to put large amounts of pressure on, let's say, a, a window pane or something like that, where is it going to break? Well, it depends, but essentially where it's going to break is at the place of most fragility, right? Wherever it's most fragile, wherever it's thinned out or wherever there, a crack has already formed, that's where it's going to break. That's how your mind is. You put your mind under enough stress, it will break and it will break in the area that you are most fragile in. Ellen Page was someone who already had a large amount of fragility when it came to her identity and when it came to her understanding of her body. This is a quote from another article. Well, let me read this. I'll read two quotes, one after the other. So this is at 16. So this is not when she finally did this, which is her mid-30s. This is when she was 16. This is what she was doing in, as a result of how she felt. At age 16, Page's dysphoria began manifesting in self-destructive behavior. He restricted his calories, smashed his head with a hairbrush, cut his shoulder with a knife, hoisted his body onto the spike of his mother's bed frame in an effort to impale himself. So you see this, there's a strong, it's not just uh, what some people going through self-harm are going through. It's a, it's a hatred of her body. And then she flat out says this in the New York Times article, where this is how she describes the sensation she had, the, the relationship she had with her body. Imagine the most uncomfortable, mortifying thing you could wear. You squirm in your skin. It's tight. You want to peel it from your body, tear it off, but you can't. Day in and day out. And if people were to learn what is underneath, who you really are without all that pain, the shame would come flooding out too much to hold on to. The voice was right. You deserve humiliation. You are an abomination. You are too emotional. You are not real. So you have essentially, again, this, this mention of a voice. And, and by the way, part of the way that it can manifest sometimes in schizophrenia is we all have a voice in our head. We all have something called an inner monologue. We all experience voices in our head. The difference is, is that I immediately recognize and am at terms with the voices are in my head are me, right? I recognize that it's, it's my voice. Someone who's schizophrenic doesn't always make that connection. It sounds like a foreign voice. It sounds like something alien that is talking to you. A and, lot of different things. Yeah. Right. And, and that's what's so distressing about it. So you see that possibly she has schizophrenia. Definitely she has some sort of a body dysmorphia. And as her stress levels go up and up and up throughout the course of her life, her psyche fragments, it fractures, it breaks and it breaks at the center of her greatest insecurities, right? It breaks at the point of her greatest fragility. This is why uh, a woman named Abigail Schreier, she wrote a book called Irreversible Damage in which she details the large increase in young girls moving into the transgender uh, movement. And prior to that, as Walt Heyer points out in his own book, right, a Christian who transitioned to be a woman and then transitioned back, Prior to about 10 years ago, the vast majority of people who had gender dysphoria, this uncomfortability with their gender, were men. Now it's all of a sudden girls, lots and lots of girls. Why? 
because girls are very uncomfortable with their bodies, right? You are around any teenage girls, they have a lot of issues with their body. And as social pressure starts bearing down on them, bearing down on them, bearing down on them, their psyches begin to fragment and they fragment at the point of greatest insecurity, which would be their bodies, right? Especially as their bodies begin to develop, a great uncomfortability can come about. Now, one of the things that's offered to young girls when they start feeling this discomfort is testosterone pills. And they say, well, you know, just try it out. Maybe this is what's wrong with you. Try out this testosterone. Well, if you're a young man, what does testosterone do when it starts floating through your body? It takes away anxiety. It makes you reckless. It makes you stupid. It makes you feel invincible. So these young girls who are struggling with massive amounts of insecurity about their bodies, they start intaking testosterone and you know what happens to their mood? It goes up. They start feeling more confident. They stop feeling more comfortable. They start, they stop experiencing so much anxiety. And the conclusion is, oh, I'm not a girl. I must be a boy. And so you see this person who's undergoing this deep, deep issue between their mind and their body and starts to fragment in this really dramatic way. And as she begins to take all of her psychological issues and funnel them into this one blueprint, she begins to feel comfortable because again, she's taking all these very difficult things. These things are, are hard to comprehend, hard to deal with and she's instead ascribing it to one particular thing that could be solved through surgery, right? That's a much easier path forward than saying, hey, you got a lot of mental problems. You have a lot of past stuff in your life. You need to kind of work through that. You may have to struggle with this particular uncomfortability with your body, maybe for the rest of your life. You may have to struggle with the uncomfortability between your imagination and reality for the rest of your life. That's just something you might have to deal with. And that sounds a whole lot worse than someone saying, hey, get the surgery and then everything will be fine, right? You're gonna feel great. And who doesn't want immediate relief when scripture, bring that back to the focus of the show, addresses us and people at very serious times in their life where they're questioning not necessarily their physical identity, but their purpose. God addresses Jeremiah on an individual basis and says, what, if the footmen have wearied you, how will you contend against horses? I mean, you'd level that uh, compared to most of what the self-affirming psychologists would say today, you'd say, that's hardly helpful, God. You're telling Jeremiah that it's going to get worse. How is that going to resolve the issue? And the answer is, it's not resolving anything, it's altering perspective. Instead of focusing on you, focus on me, because no human can contend with horses. Right. Those things are designed to run. But God can get you to do the impossible. So if we ask the question, and this is uh, true in, say, for instance, AA meetings, where they have you focus on a higher power, when we encourage people who are struggling with anything in life, but this in particular, questioning your identity, a Christian's viewpoint isn't to say, what makes me feel good, what makes me feel right with myself, where is my identity based? Scripture's message again and again isn't in the male uh, body, or in the female body, or with this name or that name, it's in Christ, that your value, that your purpose is determined based off of who's placed value on you. That removes you from the abuse of those around you, the value that's been placed or removed in some cases, especially Ellen's, uh, removed from you on the basis and acts of violence and abuse, but also, and even more importantly, in times of pleasure and of peace, but not knowing to what end. So when we're talking to people who 
are in this movement. Obviously, if they have a militant opposition to the gospel, the challenges need to be addressed. But the individuals still need to be loved. They still need the gospel. And that's what we all need to present ourselves available to do when the opportunity presents itself. Now, our culture makes that dangerous, but we know what we signed up for. So. Yeah, and I like the way you put it, because sometimes we could demonize the opposition, but it's very important to understand. It's like, what kind of person goes in and has their appendages cut off electively? Mm-hmm. Is it someone who is really, really happy and well-adjusted and malicious, or is it someone who is deeply in pain and discomfort, right? Or thinks there's an answer. Or thinks that that, and sees that as an answer. And interestingly, you know, when you were talking, the passage that actually came to my mind was Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, where Paul says, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So uh, the, the kind of quick solution versus the long-term solution, because we know that the Spirit is the Spirit of truth, right? He enters into our lives and he convicts us of sin, right? He shows us what's wrong. So Paul is saying, yeah, you have these issues, you have these difficulties, and you could get drunk. That's, that's great. That's a quick solution, quote-unquote, but what does it really do? It covers over your difficulties for just as long as the substance lasts. But then what happens? You sober up. And then all the problems you were trying to mask with this particular substance are still there, right? And now you have the difficulty of also the hangover. So he's saying that that's just wisdom across the board. There are always going to be quick solutions to these more difficult problems. But what they actually do is they provide a cover for those problems that eventually will dissipate. Now, what Paul's saying is don't do that. Be filled with the Spirit. And there is a saying in AA circles, the truth will set you free, but first it's going to mess you up, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, that's very true, right? So when God comes into your life, he's going to set you free. But in order to set you free, he first has to show you you're in bondage. He has to show you where the chains are, and he has to show you why you're in the position that you're in. And then he could start leading you out. And that's not always a fun process, but it's a necessary one. So when we come to God, right, when I'm counseling someone who might be struggling with this issue— it would be very easy for me to just say, hey, take this pill, go get this surgery. Then they're kind of out of my life and I don't have to worry about it. But to, to walk with someone through these really, really difficult emotional struggles that Ellen Page was going through, it's not an easy thing. And most people lose patience for something like that. Uh, you know, Whenever someone comes forth with massive mental issues, I'll tell you, the first response of friends and family is always going to be understanding, comfort, and consolation, as long as you got good friends and family. But as the problem persists, that patience starts to dry up and people start saying, are you really still struggling with this? Right? Why can't you get over this? And they get sick of it and they start pretending like you're making it up. You're manufacturing the issues or the difficulties. So you see someone like Ellen Page who has struggled for so long, uh, possibly received some amount of affirmation. It doesn't really sound like she has a lot of good friends or family members around her. She gets a lot of affirmation in the beginning, then as the problem becomes more and more ingrained, she, that, that dries up, and then she's got to do something to get a lot of attention, and that's what this move does for her, right? Now she's got a book out. Now she's on talk shows, and people are talking about her again, right? The relevancy has gone up, and perhaps, perhaps people like this have confused affirmation and celebration for genuine love and affection, and they're not, right? So God, when he comes into your life, he actually loves you. And because he actually loves you, he will not affirm your delusions. He will not actually just rubber stamp everything you think about yourself. He will challenge you Mm. because that is what a real friend does. That's what a real loving person does. Yeah, like Romans 12, 
you know, not only do we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, but we are to think of ourselves, uh, not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, but to think as to have sound judgment. Hmm. So he, he's not saying don't think about yourself, just do it in accordance with reality, yeah. in accordance with truth. I mean, why is there an obsession with the gender aspect of these disorders? And hmm. to the point where when it comes to gender identity, we want to remove even the concept that it's any kind of disorder. Mm. You have all these different disorders. Talon brought up an example of someone who, perfectly healthy individual in North Carolina, believed that they were meant to be blind mm. and then blinded themselves yeah. to affirm that identity. Yeah. And now <clears throat> there is a move to kind of embrace, well, but when people hear the story, they think that it kind of shocks people. Whereas now, with, with when it comes to gender transitions, it's becoming normal. So, uh, for example, <clears throat> gender-affirming health care mm -hmm. saves lives. Yep. So why not affirm? But, but no one wants to take it to the logical conclusion of, well, then we should affirm all ideas. <laughs> yeah. Anything, someone, any kind of self-perception, we ought to accommodate all of them. I believe that I should be on an NBA team uh, or, you know, my childhood sport, football. I am a all-American linebacker. That's how, that's my identity. So I think the Minnesota Vikings should take me on their team and I don't have to be on the field as long as I'm on the team as an all-American linebacker. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a really interesting question. So I have a theory and I, I could actually back up this theory with a lot of research that I'm not going to get into right now because it would take too long. But let me just explain it this way. Uh, throughout the, it began in uh, the 1700s, there was a concept that we today call transhumanism. And the idea is that we can actually artificially evolve mankind to become essentially godlike, to become deified in some way. And technology, the scientific age is how we're going to do that, right? That was the idea. And actually, the, those of you guys who have read the book Frankenstein, or at least know the story, that was one of the concepts that was coming out of the scientific age. Eternal life brought about by being able to manipulate, artificially manipulate the organs within the human body. That was something that was gone on. Now, obviously, Mary Shelley saw that as a bad thing, <laughs> but uh, that was still something that people thought could happen, right? We could uh, advance the human race beyond any of our limitations. and so. As the idea of transhumanism started to progress, it got to guys like Freud, and then it got to guys like Kinsey, and then it got to guys like John Money. The main attack against man was seen to be a natural one. So in other words, man cannot take his rightful place until man has succumbed nature, until he's overcome nature. And what we found out throughout our period here is that gender is one of the most fundamental aspects of human nature, right? So my son right now, he's seven, seven months, sorry. He's seven months. And he, I know you, you like lose the, you lose the number because you talk about months and you, anyway, he's seven months right now. He doesn't really understand much. He doesn't really understand even up or down. But what they figured out after studying kids at the age of my son and younger, is that kids know the difference between men and women before they could even see, right? So before your child could even see, they know mom, they know dad, and they know bodies that have breasts and that do not. 
They already understand the difference between men and women before they could even see. That's pretty radical. That's pretty crazy. Regardless of what the funny gym membership commercials tell you. <laughs> That's right. And so what that means is that the difference between men and women is more fundamental to human nature than the difference of up and down, right? That, that, is, that is how fundamental to your nature is. That is how concrete it is. And so many people believed that if we could overcome the boundaries between gender, we have really overcome <clears throat> and transcended any of the boundaries that prevent us from being who we want to be as human beings. So they see it as that. The reason why they don't see, say, becoming an NFL linebacker or something, because it's really not about affirmation. It's about transcending the limitations of human humanity, transcending nature. And I think that why that is in the psyche of mankind is because it goes back to the Garden of Eden. You will be as gods, discerning both good and evil. So hmm. the idea sounds is that like we a, can do that. Sounds like an attack straight to Genesis. Yep. What, what about the science? Uh, going to our questions, we got a, some questions related to what we've started with today. Garth mentioned that what about the science? Um, are, aren't there experts that can determine whether you were born the wrong gender? <laughs> and so that's the, that's the cultural sort of caricature understanding of this topic is that, well, isn't there science? Like, for example, uh, the first time I heard about Ben Shapiro was an interview where they were like in a roundtable discussion and they were talking about Kate, uh, Caitlyn Jenner, <laughs> Bruce Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner, and uh, <clears throat> his to her transition because it was fresh and new and it was a topic. And there was a trans woman uh, on the panel and she turns to Ben Shapiro and threatens him, but uh, says, you don't know the science. The idea being that, well, the science is settled. There is, there is, there's facts behind this. And he, he goes on to say, uh, this questioner here on our website, Garth, um, that he, when he got his first job, he was told that he didn't learn anything from his Christian schooling, his homeschooling, that Christians are dumb. He goes on to say, hey, I, I really want to know what your guys' thoughts are. Uh, he has a scientist friend listening, and he said, uh, Sean, he said you should have just given in to your schizophrenia. It's who you are. So, uh, um, that's special. What, what sh how would you respond to some it's of those things? Uh, should we give in to your I feelings? I should have killed myself when I was 18. That's, <laughs> that's a very positive thing, Mr. Scientist. But, but it, how, do you, how do we as Christians respond? You know, we want to always deal with the spiritual aspects of these issues. But when someone comes at it with a lab coat, that seems to be sort of like putting the gauntlet the gauntlets down and say, okay, well, now it's irrefutable because the white coat said so. Well, it's the same caricature they make of the ancient priest that just handed down dogmas and edicts from high cathedrals, and then that their word was God's word. Now it's the same thing, but instead of colorful robes and pointy hats, we have white lab coats and, you know, pocket protector glasses or whatever. The idea that, of course, our understanding is infallible because we make an observation of behavior is complete nonsense. And uh, a m mathematician and doctorate from, uh, was Lennox from Harvard or Yale? An Ivy League. Ivy League. He, he, <laughs> he teaches he, one at, of those big guys. Uh, he teaches at Oxford. Oxford, thank yeah. you. Uh, he made an observation in his jolly Irish accent. Nonsense from the mouths of geniuses is still nonsense. You can be very educated in a particular field, but you're going to find that these people in these fields can't answer every question within their field, but because they've learned so much, they have what we call faith, 
trust with reason because it's answered so many questions it must be able to assumption answer questions that we don't have all the information for because it has certain power it must be all-powerful I think even a scientist completely devoid of philosophical training could see the problem with that when we as Christians come to a worldview and say that this answers enough questions for us to dedicate our lives to it, we're not doing so because it can't answer questions. We're coming to a conclusion because he answered the question that matters most. Is there life after death? And because Jesus of Nazareth proved in a moment of history that not only there is a God, that his feelings towards us aren't malicious, I fortunately was able to surround myself with the sort of people around the age of 11 or 12 that my life was not my own, that my perspective in life is not based on how I feel, but how someone else felt about me, and that he invested his own life towards me so that when I was by the way, for the fun of it, uh, trying to dig out my radial artery to see how much blood I can lose before passing out, had an opportunity to hear not the voices, but a particular and familiar voice telling me, I died for you, can you live for me? My opinions, my perspective in life isn't based on the scientific process, because if I did that based on observation and behavior, what feels right, like the scientist individual who encouraged me to kill myself, is saying that is, of course, going to be based on whether or not I'm always going to be right, that the outcome is going to be what's best, because that's just what I feel. But if, on the other hand, God's feelings, the same feeling and perspective that literally set the foundations of this universe, that set the structures for the scientific fields that we all study and admire, that governed the laws of physics, that established our biology, and that's still functioning quite well to this day, that we're so confounded by that we even use fields like biomimetics to form engineering fields off of it. I'd say that he knows a little bit more about me than my emotions would want to direct me. So once again, and for the third time, so that the point isn't lost, Mr. Who Wants Me to Kill Myself, we're talking about someone who gave his life for me, not someone who thinks they can give me my life by allowing the power to take it on a whim. I have to consider more than just what my feelings are. So if a scientist is capable of doing that, I'd love to meet him. But if on the other hand, we're going to take, going to take rather explanatory power into perspective, an omnipresent, omnipotent, and omnibenevolent, excuse me, being who knows the end from the beginning, who valued me when I was valueless, who loved me when I hated him, as Romans chapter five, verses six through eight notes, that puts into perspective a lot more than just what I feel on a whim. Now again, you may not have intended to call me to kill myself. I've been told worse today on the internet for a lot less, but the point being made is just that. Scientists can have opinions, but that doesn't make it authoritative. Scientists trust their fields, not because it answers every question, but it has answered a lot. Christians work the same way, but we have answered a lot more important questions, and those questions actually save lives. Yeah, so um, we're talking about science, and I really like the question because it does bring up the idea of, is it possible for people who believe in some sort of an orthodoxy like Christians or other religious people to deny science? And the answer is, yeah, absolutely. It happens all the time, right? Uh, but as Sean said, it's also possible for people who are secular atheists to deny facts in relation to the experts that they hoist up above themselves, right? It, what we have to understand about science, and whenever someone prefaces the word science with the word the, 
I already know that we're in for some interesting dialogue uh, because there's no such thing as the science, right? Science is a method in which we try to understand the physical world better. That's, that's all it is. The guy who actually constructed the methodology of science, a guy named Sir Francis Bacon, was a Christian. In fact, in his book where he's talking about the scientific method, he says, a little science inclines a man to atheism, much science inclines him back to Christianity, right? So he believed that the scientific method was built on the foundation of the premises of the Christian faith, and it couldn't exist in any other worldview. This is why when they tried to teach the Chinese, when the missionaries went out to China, uh, around the time the scientific method was being developed, the methodology of science, they realized it didn't work in China. Right? They didn't have the fundamental premises that we believe as Christians that allow for the scientific method to play out. Right, That's problematic. And I'm not going to get into what all those premises are, but I encourage you to read his book. Right, If you're into science, read Sir Francis Bacon. You'll like it. He actually does spell out the methodology and why he believes it and why he believes that Christianity is the only worldview that could produce it. But the other thing that is important to understand about this method is it doesn't, it's an unbiased method. It's just a way in which we investigate the physical world. And that means that uh, somebody who is performing the methodology correctly, whether or not they have a degree bef uh, after their name, it's not going to predispose them to be wrong. And vice versa, if someone does have a degree after their name, just because they have that degree, it doesn't predispose them to be right. You have to follow the methodology correctly. The other thing that Sean was getting at is that science has limitations, right? Again, science can only tell you what's going on in the physical world. It has nothing to say about metaphysics. Now, when we say something like, hasn't science told us that gender, that, that this person ought to be this gender? Well, you've already messed up. Because whenever you use the word ought, you have transcended science into metaphysics. You're no longer talking about physics anymore. Because you cannot, as David Hume, an atheist, said, you cannot derive an ought from an is. Just because you see something that is doesn't mean that you can infer some sort of an ethical mm -hmm. framework. So if I say that person ought to be, that person who is biologically male ought to be a female, I have now gone past science. I am now speaking on a metaphysical level. I'm talking about the good. I'm no longer talking about the true. And it doesn't mean you're right or wrong by saying that, but what it does mean is you have now moved past science, and you have to acknowledge that. You're now in the realm of metaphysics. You're in the realm of philosophy. And when they say science, usually what it means is that people with genuine gender dysphoria or gender identity disorder, as it used to be called, um, <clears throat> have a higher suicidality rate. Than any and, other group in history. Yes, and, and when they are affirmed, as they say, mm -hmm. through uh, surgery and so on, and societally, mm -hmm. that that wanes that they begin to stave off their suicidality and that this is an improvement and that alone that data is reason enough to affirm the good and and two things on that number one even if that was true that's still not a scientific uh preposition right you're still saying now now it's a moral thing now it's still a moral thing yeah. now you can't just say the science is settled no, there isn't, because yeah. you can't use propulsive language that's right. in naturalism, if, that's you, right. if that's the world. And science can only deal with nature, That's right. so you can't use ought. That's right. I can't. I, I could say, we can do this thing, but I can't make any impositions of we should do this mm -hmm. thing. 
that's that's again you're now in metaphysics you've transcended science and you need to admit that you need to say okay we're in mm -hmm. philosophy now it's not that philosophy can't figure out anything in fact philosophy was the methodology for figuring out everything prior to the scientific they method. often say that philosophy is the horse that pulls the cart of science and theology that's right right <laughs> philosophy metaphysics that is how we figure out things so but you have to understand that you can't prove philosophy in a test tube right you can't go into a scientific background and prove philosophy mm -hmm. you have to use logical argumentation to infer, to use deductive and inductive mm -hmm. reasoning to move yeah. someone to believe this is what we ought to, to do. So and you need to start with premises, and you need to have worldviews, and then you need to function off an ethical premise. Now, to go more to the question, though, of is it better, right, let, let's say that there was absolute proof that by giving someone a particular surgery, it would improve their mental health, and it would make them less likely to take their own life should we do it? I think that that's an interesting debate, but again, it has nothing to do with ought. Now you're not arguing that they're actually a woman, you're just arguing that it's better for their mental health to be perceived as a woman. That's a different uh, premise, right? So the premise of your original question was, can't scientists figure out that there is actually a man trapped inside of that woman's body? And the answer is no. And even if you use that as an argument, the answer is still no. You're just making the argument of, well, if it helps their mental health, why not all play along, right? That's a different argument, though. Mm -hmm. It's completely different. Um, you've stepped out of science at that point. Again, not only have you stepped out of science, but you've also stepped out of philosophy. All you're arguing at that point is that somebody would be better off mentally by me saying a particular thing. That isn't, that, that's like me saying, is it better for me to teach my kid about Santa or not, right? If it makes them feel better about where their presents come from on December 25th, why wouldn't mm. I tell them about Santa Claus? Mm. Right? I'm not talking about philosophy. I'm not talking about science. I'm just talking about a subjective mental perception of somebody else. That's all I'm talking about. Um, but all the studies, right? So we say, has the scientific method actually been put forth to prove that mental health goes up? Now, you're already on a tricky ground when you talk about mental health because, again, that is subjective, right? Your mental health is subjective. No one else can objectively figure out what you're feeling. They can run neurological tests and figure out how things are firing inside of your brain, but there's no direct correlation that we found between you feel this way and this particular thing's happening in your brain. Yeah, you can't do a brain scan and go, oh, there it is. I just found the source of your desire for suicide. That's right. You let's, can, just yeah. let's just deal with that part of the brain and then it'll go away. That's right. <laughs> that, no one has found something like that. So again, you're now talking about subjective reasoning. You're talking about someone's subjective perception of themselves. And there are many things that I could do that can improve someone's subjective sense of self that might not be good for them. So again, take my daughter, for instance. Today, there's probably about 50 things that she wanted from my wife. And she probably, my wife probably said no to about 48 of them. And every single no that she gave my daughter decreased her mental health. Mm -hmm. I guarantee it. It made her feel worse about herself. But in the long scheme of things, we believe, but again, this is metaphysics. This isn't science. We believe that this will make her a more well-rounded human being because it will train her in virtues like patience, understanding, and it will stop her from being a narcissist, right? We believe that those things are good, but we have a religious background to believe those things. Once you're delving into the metaphysics, the question is, is what is your background? What's your fundamental premise that tells you that this is what we ought to do to somebody else? Now, if all you're saying is, 
I'm just about the preservation of human life. This is going to help someone's human existence, so why not do it? Well, again, the scientific method really hasn't been applied to this issue yeah. in the way that we need it. You would need a long-term study to see not only how these surgeries affect someone's body, but what kind of risks they incur by taking on these particular surgeries, which are extensive, by the way. And how that trauma alone affects your mental health. Exactly. And you would have to follow someone, a large group of people, for at least a decade, at least a decade. Because some of the tests are coming, again, we don't have any long-term tests, but even some of the studies that we've done, let's say they just released one less than a month ago, that found out, and this is the US military, people who are using uh, the hospitals on the bases around the country to get gender-affirming care, quote unquote, 40% detransitioned within the first five years. 40%, that's a huge number. So if you're gonna look at it and say, well, we might get it wrong, four out of 10 times, and these are irreversible surgeries that you're doing to somebody, that's a big deal, right? That's something that, I mean, imagine for a second, if you go into the doctor and you're gonna do a surgery, let's say it's knee surgery, and they're like, there's a 40% chance this will fail, and you're going to be worse off than when you started. How many of you would get that surgery, even if it would increase mobility within your knee? No way. Do they tell patients that? No, again, with Ellen Page, she had a Zoom call. That was it. Even mm -hmm. if you're gonna get a knee surgery, you have an in-person consultation where they talk to you about what the risks are of the surgery. She had one Zoom call, and then within a month and a half of discovering her new gender identity, she got the surgery. That is malpractice, if I've ever heard of mm -hmm. it, right? There is no other procedure that is operated in that way using those methods. So uh, already you see that there is an agenda, there is something that is being pushed, and that alone should make you skeptical of the research that's coming out about it. And mm. again, most of the studies that we have do not have a control group, meaning that they don't have a group of people. By the way, what a control group would look like, none of them have this. What a control group would look like is, here's a group of people with gender dysphoria, we're gonna take this segment of the population and we're going to try to treat it with purely psychological methods, not affirmation therapy, but actually trying to get someone comfortable in their biological gender. None of the studies do that, none of them. So that they don't even have a control group, so you're well, already going now against equating, sound science. They're equating that to conversion therapy. That's right. That's what makes this such a difficult issue because it has been co-opted or brought into another movement that has also been equated to things as immutable as ethnicity or race. Yep. And so when you have done that, it adds all, I mean, if it was just a separate issue and a separate group of people, we probably wouldn't be even having this conversation, but because it's been lumped in to a movement that has talked about your sexual orientation and then comparing that to the, like I said, the immutability of race, yeah. to say, hey, it's no different than oppressing me because I'm Hispanic or African-American or gay or straight or not and whatnot, everything that's non uh, heterosexual is a part of this movement, including this particular issue, and that's what adds uh, so. Much, that's what makes it so much more difficult to talk about. Which is not how you get to conclusions yeah. that are productive. That you can't talk about them in a contrary manner. My son, but going is, back to the questions. Yeah, yeah my is, son has been having some stomach issues, and he tells me every day that 
ice cream and waffles make his stomach feel better. <laughs> so should I believe? It reminds me of this passage in Proverbs 27. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Mm. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Yeah. And that's really what we're doing when we're affirming. We're saying, yeah, I'll play along with your delusion, pointing out the fact that within four years after transitioning, suicidality returns almost to the same rate as it was before transitioning. I don't know if you knew that, yeah. but that's what we're seeing. And after seeing. five to seven years, it goes up. And it goes up. <clears throat> so, wow. <clears throat> uh, one last thing that I'll say before we move on to the next question is that, again, this, this all presupposes what, what is our premise, right? So as Christians, as Sean said, we believe in a God who created our bodies with intent and that we owe him something, right? So as Christians, we believe that we have gotten the breath of God that animates our being, that he loves us, that he created us with a purpose, and that is to reflect him and his invisible image to the visible created order. And that means that it's not just how do I feel, but it's how I ought to act in the given structures that God has presented me. God has placed me in a particular body, in a particular time, in a particular culture, in a particular country, with particular aspects, family or of origin, language, all these things. I'm supposed to use all of them to glorify God, Excellent. every single one of them. So again, it's not about how do I feel, it's how I ought to live in order to please my Creator. That's the premise I'm starting from, and yes, I could utilize science in order to inform those decisions, but I have to start from a premise, and people on the other side do too. Hmm. Good stuff. Good conversation, good discussion. Uh, speaking of having this discussion, dealing with argumentation, uh, two sides, etc. cetera. Um, sorry, I just bumped my mic. <clears throat> Uh, Uma, Una, I hope I said your name right. What does it mean that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal? That comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, one of my favorite passages. Yeah, we were talking about it yesterday. Yeah, we were. Yeah. Uh, any thoughts? Yeah. Shortest answer possible, it's saying that we don't win wars by fighting battles or expanding our borders like pagan religions would infer. It is noting that we win converts through arguments, through ideas. So starting in verse 3 and going to verse 6, he makes the point, though we walk according to the flesh, we're in a physical body, that's how we live, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, so distinct from the usual kind, are not carnal, meaning in flesh, but are mighty in God, so notice the source, in God for pulling down strongholds. Oh, so we're only to attack buildings, not bodies. Note, strongholds, casting down arguments, and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge, notice the issue, of God, bringing every thought into captivity, so internal as well as external arguments, to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So it's an ethical system, not a uh, militaristic one that any Christian that would say we're to conquer in the name of Christ missed the whole point of why Christ came. That's why, as you guys stated yesterday, if uh, my kingdom were of this world, my followers would fight. Pilate concluded there was no fault in this guy because the only thing he was concerned about is was there a threat of rebellion? Was there a physical, a carnal threat to Rome's authority over Judea. And as we see in Christian history, for a thousand years, people got that idea. And the only times where actual crusades were fought was because Muslims were desecrating shrines. The only 
stable unifying government in Europe at the time was under the name of the church and they had to play both hats and it uh, did not work out that well. But you want more information on the Crusades, let us know. As far as that passage goes, that's the only point. We fight with ideas, not with our fists. That's why Paul spent all his time arguing (laughs) with Jews in the synagogues. He sat and tried to persuade them that Christianity was true, that Jesus was the Christ. Good stuff. Well, speaking of uh, the science, hmm. uh, Neil wants to know, William Lane Craig attacked Christian, attacks Christians who support a young Earth model. Is the Earth young or old? Just as a clarification, I've followed William Lane Craig's sort of mental transition over the years. Uh, I, I've a big, big fan early on in my faith uh, through his book, especially his book, Reasonable Faith. And um, <clears throat> I, don't, I wouldn't say he attacks. In fact, he often would say in his earlier classes that the young earth model is a very viable model. Only recently has he put out his study on Genesis and came up with what he calls the uh, mytho-history view of the book of Genesis, but that's a separate subject. But just to say that I don't think he would attack those who hold the young earth model. He would say it's a viable translation or interpretation of Genesis, but he goes with what's called the science. He, he would say that secular... has attacked Christians for believing in a pre-tribulation rapture. William Lane Craig has attacked Christians for believing in the flood of Noah as a literal flood. And frankly, I see that in light of all these things, it comes from your assumptions about the Bible. My impression ends. Uh, We got 20 seconds. I'll just make it brief. When it comes to whether it's young or old, we believe it's young because we take a very literal approach towards Genesis as categorically history. There are people who do not, but they do it from a premise that assumes modern culture and the assumption of naturalism, which is fundamentally incompatible with the assumptions of the supernatural. However, because he... uh, tends to talk to a lot of atheists. He thinks that it's easier or at least less hazardous to compromise this one area when it gets people back into the gospel. We don't share that sentiment. Hey, thanks for tuning in. If you didn't uh, have a chance to ask a question, uh, tune in again tomorrow. Same place, same time. Thank you and God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.